and welcome to Start Your Week by the Bunker. I'm Alex Andreu and back with me is Bunker, an Oh God What Now favourite, fresh from her Jam Tomorrow series. It's Roz Taylor. Hello, Roz. Hello, Alex. Roz, so it came to pass, just over three years after Johnson claimed he got Brexit done, that we are getting Brexit done again, still. Um, a new deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol, the uh, document that regulates Northern Ireland's relationship with the EU and the rest of the UK, uh, is eagerly anticipated. The choreography suggests some confidence. Uh, do you think it will be done today, Ros? Yes, it will. Whether it's a done deal in terms of support is another question completely. But uh, Ursula von der Leyen uh, from the European Commission is arriving at number 10 today for talks and then the cabinet is meeting. And then there is going to be a uh, press conference at Windsor, which the King may or may not be involved in. We don't know. Very exciting. Ooh, yes, we'll talk about that in a minute. And then um, Rishi Sunak is going to deliver a statement to MPs. They've all been told to return to the Commons today. And this will be a chance, if some people object, to stand up and object. What do we know about the general shape of the deal, Rose? So it centres on a red lane and a green lane. And of course, the concept is familiar from when you come back from abroad and you choose the red lane if you have something to declare and the green lane if you have nothing to declare. But the fundamentals of it are that when goods arrive in Northern Ireland, there will be a red lane for goods that go from Northern Ireland to Ireland, i.e. the European Union, and a green lane for goods that are going to just stay in Northern Ireland. And there will also be some sort of formal role for the European Court of Justice in the governance of Northern Ireland, but it seems that it will be very remote or as remote as it can possibly be so that they will try to solve any disputes via a series of intermediary bodies in order to try and ensure that the ECJ doesn't get involved because that is a huge sticking point, probably the most important sticking point for the Democratic Unionist Party. I'm not sure that's not exactly as it was in the original deal, you know, uh, the, the ECJ was always going to be a court of last resort. Um, I, I, the spin I sense has been that by virtue of green lanes, red lanes, there will be a lot fewer disputes. So even fewer of them will get to the ECJ. I, I think that's nonsense. Which way do we think the DUP will jump? The, they began the process with very positive noises about 10 days ago and have been getting increasingly hostile, it seems to me. It's difficult to say. I think they are on the horns of a dilemma at the moment, <laughs> a huge dilemma for them, because their continued survival in Northern Ireland as a political force basically depends on their opposing the deal. Because they have said that unless the deal meets the seven requirements, the seven red lines that they have drawn, they will continue to play no part in Stormont and to basically mean that the Northern Ireland Assembly can't function. And because of the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, unfortunately, they have that veto. So they have to mm. decide whether they're going to enable the assembly in which they, they play a part to or normally play a part to to function or whether they want to say no that's it and and then we get into the 
the issue of is the Good Friday Agreement going to have to be rewritten in order to ensure mm. that Northern mm. Ireland can have some sort of government. But nonetheless, the political thing here that's important to them is that their base are very energised, their political base, which is dwindling, are very energised about the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's their number one issue. That's the dilemma they, they face, and that's why it's so difficult for them. Can they continue to hold out and be so stubborn, or are they going to finally see sense and be pragmatic? Yes, I guess I guess that all depends on whether they think they can. There is something more they can get out of it, um, yes. or not. Because if they if their assessment is that they won't get anything more out of this, then to go to the barricades just to help Johnson, who screwed them over this, um, they might not do that. Um, talking of Johnson, he intervened several times last week. At the end of last week, he said it was a mistake not to push through with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Uh, that's a bill that undoes the very deal that three years ago he told everyone was fantastic. He's against his own deal now. Will this be his first proper battle with Sh Sunak? Is he shaping up to try and push him off the throne? Well, he would certainly like it to be. You know, there's nothing Johnson would like more than to return as Prime Minister, hailed as the man who should never have been removed in the first place. Mm. My sense is that the energy is moving away from Johnson. And I think he will be calculating today, looking at today's front pages, which are not uh, so hostile to Sunak's deal or what we know about Sunak's deal as he might have hoped. The Telegraph, of course, his number one priority in many ways is very muted. I think he is going to calculate that he can't use this issue to propel himself back into Downing Street much as he would like to. I think he senses that the public appetite is simply not there. Everyone is exhausted from years of Brexit stuff and they don't want any more of it. They want it to just go away with the exception of a few absolute extremists. And Johnson miscalculated when he had tried to run against you know, Sunak last time. And he was all for it and he was going to do it. And then he saw, or he heard, that the Sun newspaper was going to say, Boris, don't run. And then he pulled out. He is very closely watching the press. And I think his calculation will be that, unfortunately for him, now is not the time. Yes, the, the Express extraordinarily is running with a headline, Best for Britain, which will tickle <laughs> our name, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, yes, I, I think you're right. This might become another one where Johnson did have the votes, <laughs> but decided not to do it, uh, just like the leadership election. Mark Francois occasionally podcast favourite Mark Francois, was touring <laughs> studios on Sunday saying ERG MPs are not stupid, uh, that's a quote, and will not be fooled by elements of the deal. That's precisely the elements of the deal they approved last time. And I quote the Star Chamber as ticking every box. Um, will the result be all-out Tory civil war? Uh, can they really try to topple their third prime minister in six months? You know, I don't think they can. Because if Johnson decides he's not going to go for it, then who exactly are they going to install as a new prime minister? <laughs> there isn't an obvious yeah. candidate, is there? And 
I should add that Johnson didn't help his chances um, when he was reported as having said, fuck the Americans, in reference to the idea that Joe Biden should have any say in the future of Northern Ireland. I mean, of all the crass, stupid things to say, it has gone down very, very badly. If they don't have a leader and they don't have someone who they can get behind, I think they are fundamentally a spent force. And I may be wrong, and there will probably be two or three, you know, a handful who make a huge mm. fuss about this. And Marc Francois will probably be one of them. But what I think they will do is a lot of performing, huffing and puffing and tutting, and then they will turn around and say, well, it's not perfect for us, but Northern Ireland deserves to, you know, have uh, its own. So we, we can't get in the way of Northern Ireland being allowed to having its assembly sitting again. And we want to be, you know, quite reasonable and it's not ideal for us, but we will live with it in order to ensure that we can get Brexit done. And we will probably hear that phrase again. Yes, and we saw Brexit hardman Steve Baker uh, coming out of number 10 on Sunday, giving the thumbs up, whatever that means. And now you mentioned the involvement of King Charles. That seemed to stir some controversy that EUP Sammy Wilson uh, took it as an obvious and offensive manipulation. Was it a mistake to involve a royal? or, Or do you think it was a clever ploy to sort of flush out the objectors before the deal is announced, so that Sunak could take the temperature of what the actual uh, opposition to this was? It may well have been that. Um, I think it's also an attempt to make it seem as though this deal is the obvious thing to do and the right thing to do and has the stamp of the heart of the British establishment uh, and the approval. By getting the king involved or suggesting the king will be involved with the interesting role that the monarchy plays in our constitution or lack of it, it it, it has that aura of a sense of something that is settled, that is right, that ought to be done. And I think that's actually what the DUP objected to, because they didn't mm. like the king being co-opted in that way. I nonetheless think that it was a useful tactic on Sunak's part. And it also speaks to the importance of getting this through for him. When the king is involved, something is really important, right? Or else it isn't important at all. But mm. if the king is involved in this, it means that uh, it, it really should happen for the good of Britain as a united kingdom. And that's the key here, United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, not just Britain. There was also a terrible shooting in Northern Ireland last week, reminiscent of the bad, bad old days, an off-duty police officer. Has that given new impetus to, to do the deal, do you think, by reminding everyone of the stakes? Yes, I think it has. It's obviously tragic that that happened. Um, it was a particularly appalling attack in front of quite a lot of young young people and the policeman who was attacked was coaching them in football, I think, at the time. Uh, it was a reminder of how, yes, horrific a situation can get in Northern Ireland. And of course, we know that it is the existence of border posts and a hard border that is going to be such a difficulty if this deal fails and mm. we have to go back to we, we have to return to to that situation that is very inflammatory in Northern Ireland and in Ireland. 
And so, yes, it was a sad but unfortunately useful reminder of what can happen. To wrap this up, Starmer has promised to lend the votes and political cover uh, if needed to Sunak. Will Labour need to do this? Actually, will there be a vote? Sunak and ministers, um, including Raab on Sunday, have refused to confirm there will be a vote. They keep saying this phrase that the Commons will be given a chance to express its view. Um, What does that mean, do you think? It's not clear what it means at all. I mean, if I were Rishi Sunak, I might be tempted to just ram this through and not have a vote. I mean, that was what Hmm. Boris Johnson would have done, of course. Because they have the executive power to just sign it, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think he needs to. There was a hint in the Times today that there might be a vote on some part of the deal, but not the whole deal. But it's not clear mm. which part. But there are a few Brexiteers like Theresa Villiers coming out today and saying there must be a vote of some sort. And of course, mm. Marc Francois and the ERG are, would be extremely keen to have one. But on the other hand, you know, if there isn't a vote, objectors still have the ability to stand up in the Commons and make their voices heard, and the Speaker will allow them to do that. Yes. You mentioned there's a lot going on um, elsewhere. Teachers go on strike this week, and there are more dates coming. How are parents coping? How are you coping? Uh, It's not great, I have to say. It's very difficult. Obviously, I support the spirit of the strikes, but it's not just the one this week. In two weeks, there are two more on two consecutive days. Many of us are having to take days as holiday off work, which, you know, you don't want to do. And um, yes, it's getting increasingly difficult and there appears to be no movement whatsoever on that dispute. There seem to be uh, hints of some movement on the nurses dispute a few days ago, but of course that has fallen by the wayside a bit with the Northern Ireland protocol. Yeah. And we're not clear what's going on here. So there has been no movement on any of the strikes with Johnson kicking off, I think, in the local elections just over a month away, Sunak seems to me to be heading into a very critical make-or-break period, but but we'll see. Um, also, a quick word on the uh, Scottish National Party leadership battle kicked off by Sturgeon, surprise resignation, uh, two weeks ago. Party politicians and bookies seem to be leaning uh, to Hamza Yusuf's way, who is apparently also the unofficial Sturgeon favourite, but members are leaning to the rather controversial Kate Forbes. Is this shaping up to be a big rift? Yes, potentially it is. This is very interesting. I don't think that uh, we expected this to happen. Forbes, interestingly, also has quite a big lead among the public, according to a Times poll over the weekend. And that, of course, may sway SNP, MSPs and MPs in what they decide Mm. to do. But there are clear, clear, very clear, unusually clear differences here between the two candidates. We know Forbes's views on gay marriage, even having children outside marriage, abortion, are frankly very reactionary. And we don't know really to what extent those would carry over into her policies. But we do have a much stronger sense of who she is and what she believes in. Yusuf, on the other hand, uh, is very much more in the Sturgeon mould when it comes to issues like this. A big supporter of trans rights, for example. But he is perceived as having done a pretty poor job on the health brief in Scotland. Mm. And But all this comes after there was a general consensus in Westminster that Forbes had shot herself in the foot 
And that's interesting because she clearly, in the minds of some of the Scottish public and quite a few of the members, hasn't. And it speaks to perhaps that we don't know as much about Scotland as we might assume we do. And we don't know as much about Scottish culture as we might assume we do. And we shouldn't take things for granted about who's going to win there. But it would nonetheless be extraordinary to go from Nicola Sturgeon's agenda to Kate Forbes's. That would be yeah. a remarkable change. And remember, this is not just a party leader. This is First Minister. Yes. And and, and I think just because a, a slim majority support her among um, as a potential leader among voters and uh, SNP members doesn't mean that the people who object to her don't object to her much more strongly than they would object to anyone else. Yes, you could have an almost Corbyn-like situation. Yeah, quite a fork on the road, I think, for the SNP uh, up ahead. We'll talk about that much more in the coming weeks, I'm sure. Now, uh, once again, uh, we have to talk of another mass drowning of migrants in the Mediterranean. We know that at least 60 people, including children and one baby, died off the coast of Italy when a wooden boat fell apart. The overall death toll estimate in the last 10 years in the Med is 20,000 people. Is Europe dealing with this at all or just ignoring it? Europe is very stuck on this issue. It is still leaving it to the countries closest to North Africa and the Middle East to deal with it because other states don't want to get involved. In the past, there has been talk of something called a resettlement framework where migrants who arrived in, say, Italy might go and live in, say, Sweden. Um, But uh, the current rule is that migrants must claim asylum in the first country they arrive in, in the EU. And so that's what they do. Uh, Of course, there's been a change of government in Italy recently with Giorgio Maloney. She was elected partly on a pledge to deal with these migrant crossings. And she over the weekend expressed deep sorrow over the drownings. But nonetheless, a few days ago, her government just tightened the rules on um, migrant rescues. So there are similarities here, really, with the British government and the way that they are trying to deal with migrant crossings and what is they are trying to feel their way towards what they can do and what they can't do and what they can get away with and what they can't get away with. I think the two countries might end up actually almost mirroring each other because the in terms of the impulse to get this problem done and the right-wing instincts of both governments, there are some strong similarities. Yes, and, and I think it's important that you point out that parallel because that boat approached Calabria from Turkey. Um, normally boats that get in trouble on their way to Italy come from North Africa. This boat was coming from Turkey, which has been happening increasingly since Greece hardened its policy on this kind of crossing and adopted a sort of similar rule to what the UK is looking to adopt. So maybe there is a lesson there that toughening the law doesn't deter crossings. It just forces smugglers into longer and more dangerous routes. Um, What about the Homes for the Ukraine scheme? It is coming to an end. We're hearing widespread reports of Ukrainians being left homeless, but government seems to be shifting responsibility onto councils. I mean, is is that good enough? for government to put in place a national scheme for bringing thousands of people over, then just wash its its hands 
uh, of what happens to them. No, it isn't good enough. I mean, it's it's mirrors what it's done with things like social care, where it's gotten a huge issue and it just has shoved it all onto councils and said, you have to deal with this, but not given them any more resources to do so. According to Sky over the weekend, there are 4,295 Ukrainian families who are homeless in the UK now. And of course, this is in a situation where we already have a chronic shortage of housing and of social housing. One doesn't want to think that there would be tensions over this, but there may well be tensions over this because people who are on council waiting lists will not like it if they see Ukrainians being housed when they are not. And we have to be very aware too of the potential for unhappiness over that. That is a potential tinderbox, which I don't think people are quite facing up up to. There is also evidence that some Ukrainians are being forced into uh, working for their hosts. In other words, it's forced labour. They are being given somewhere to live, but they are being forced to do, to work for the person who's housing them. Yes, well, I mean, the same communities don't don't like when people are being housed, but they also don't like when there's suddenly an increase in homelessness in their community. So, uh, you know. The government did not think this through. I mean, Homes for Ukraine was a deeply flawed scheme. It was very short term. There was a sort of, I think, misguided hope that the war in Ukraine would be all over in six months and people could go back. And of course, it isn't. To wrap things up today, last week's anniversary dominated the news. Um, Has it galvanized support? The G20 were deadlocked on a text condemning Russia with China being one of the objectives. Zelensky is looking to meet Xi. China did issue a sort of peace plan. What do you think of, of the recent developments? Well, the peace plan is really nothing of the sort. Joe Biden has already condemned it. It's basically saying that Russia can stay in Ukraine, you know, with certain sort of concessions. It's It, it, it wants to find a way of saving face for Vladimir Putin. And of course, saving face for Vladimir Putin is <laughs> extremely difficult. Um, basically, Zelensky as well wants desperately to, to, to stop China sending weapons to Russia, because that would mm. be a game changer in a very bad way for Ukraine. So that's largely why he wants to talk to Z to try to preempt that. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't give any credence to the to the China peace plan. It's it's fairly meaningless, and yes. it certainly would never be accepted by Zelensky. Although it does contain a lot of points which are fairly uncontroversial, I, I, I need to say. Well, um, I think this is it from us. There's a lot of uh, uh, other stories floating around. It's a very news-rich week, let's say. Watch out for further results in the closely fought Nigerian election later today. Oh, and with storms in California, snowstorms in California, and Canada closing ice rings, I look out for more Book of Revelation signs of the apocalypse that might be upon us. Ros, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Listeners, if you enjoy The Bunker, you can back us on Patreon to help us keep making it. There's a link in the show notes, or you can search Bunker Patreon Podcast. You'll get every episode early and ad-free, plus a shout-out on this show. Here's Rose with today's. Thank you to Saskia, Jean Hackett, Nigel White and Paul Franzini. I'm Alex Andreu. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu with Ross Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. 
The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.